tonight's topic, we're going to talk about, I kind of labeled it gay marriage because that's the, that's the discussion that's out there in the, in the culture today. But I want to say this as kind of introductory thoughts to this process tonight. First of all, I'm not going to tell you that I've got this all figured out and everything. I got this all hammered down and, and can tell you exactly what to think. And I don't even know that that's a real healthy approach to this anyway. I, I think when we get to the Word of God and Scriptures and stuff, I think there's truth. And then I think there is a call on us, every single one of us, to be sensitive to the Spirit's leading as to how to take that truth and make it alive in the world in which we live. And I don't know that we like that dependence. I don't know that we like that. I got to listen as I go. So, but I think it's very important because um, right now in our culture, in our world, there is this huge argument, this huge discussion. Um, and I think basically the church has looked um, ignorant, um, not because we are, but that's, I think that's how we look to the world. Would, would you disagree? I think that we look intolerant. I think we look judgmental, condemning. Um, I think we wind up confusing the issue a lot. And I'm not saying that um, the truth doesn't matter. We're going to start by taking a look at what does the Bible actually say about this. And I hope that that feeds into our, uh, you know, our accountability and, and our entrusting um, the, the way that God entrusts us with this truth. But I don't think it just stops with I know the truth. I think we are called, as we've looked at as we've gone through 1 Corinthians, to really have a passion for getting the truth across. I think God didn't just say, well, here's the truth, boom. I think God had a passion for getting the truth across to us. I think Jesus had a passion for getting the truth across. It's a surprising thing to me. We went through the book of Mark a couple of years ago, and it's such an action book. Jesus is doing this and doing this and doing this. Get into the book of John, and it's such a passion for, for explaining and teaching and even confronting, powerfully confronting disbelief, stubbornness. Um, spiritual pride, that kind of stuff that's just powerful. And so God has a passion to not just declare the truth, but to get it across in a way. And I think we've kind of gotten in our own way. And I guess what we're asking is, does God have the answer for this? Does God have a calling on us, let's say as a church and us as the church, on how we deal with an issue like this in our world today? And I believe he does. I will also tell you this. Um, I am thrilled that there are people in our church who, ha- who trust us enough to come to church and really face this struggle very courageously. That does my soul so much good because um, I believe that when we have a struggle in our life, that coming at a place where the brothers and sisters of Christ get together and we worship the Lord together and we, we learn in the Word together is a healthy place for someone in a struggle to be. And too often it becomes an unhospitable place for those in certain kinds of sin. Um, and, and they wind up being pushed away by the very people that are supposed to attract them. And, and I don't know about you, but as we talked about in the book of John a couple of weeks ago, does it blow you away? how attractive Jesus was to those who were desperately lost. Like the religious leaders thought he was, you know, junk. They just wanted nothing to do with him. But the people who were lost, the people who were the outcasts, the lepers, the blind, the broken, the lame, man, they, they just, lo- Jesus just came right at them and blew them away that he cared about them and they flocked to him. We see stories about sinners that, that most of Israel would have nothing to do with. That Jesus says, hey, let's have lunch. And in their lunch, we don't see Jesus hammering over them, you're a lousy, rotten sinner, can't believe how awful you are. And yet, somehow, we don't have really any of the conversation recorded, but what we do have recorded is that their life is changed by being around Jesus. And I wonder if we held up the mirror to your life, to our life collectively as the church of Christ and said, are people's lives getting changed by being around us? If that was our measure of the effectiveness of our witness and our light and our influence on our, our, our society, our world, our, our circle, how are we doing? Because that's what Jesus did. And if we're going to follow Jesus, I think it's important that we let him lead, which means we have to be willing to ask, what do you want us to do here? So we're going to talk about sex and, and uh, specifically this idea of same-sex attraction, but we're really going to talk about it in the larger scope. I think 
we have disconnected same-sex struggles, ideas, concepts from sexuality as a whole. So let's just talk about this for a second. Um, before we dig into the word, and we're going to start in Leviticus 18, just because we're going to start at what does the Bible actually say, so we'll get there in a second. Um, but my experience as a pastor and my experience as like a person in this world says this to me. We live in a sex-crazed world. I don't know that there was ever a time that it wasn't. You know, I know some of you who've been around a little longer than I have uh, look back with nostalgia, you know, the 50s and whatever, and okay. But really, sex has always been a very powerful force in our world. Whether it was out in the open or whether it was behind the scenes, it is one of the primary movers of our culture and our society. That's just how I see it. Uh, I think you probably agree. Um, and it is a, it's not just, you know, everywhere, it's strong. Its influence is strong. Now, why do you think that is? Why do you think that sexuality has such a strong effect, influence on our world? We've, there's a lot of reasons that it clouds the issue, but there, that's really true. There's a lot of emotion stuff that goes on, and there's a lot of, when you say lust, we're talking about desire. Is there thing, are there things you want in this world? Universally, yes, there are things that we want. That's just part of being a human being. There's stuff you want. Lust has a connotation, not always in the Word of God, but it does have a connotation towards sexual want. What do I want sexually? It's a powerful force. I would tell you that sexuality is a gift from God, that God created it and made it. The reason that it is pleasurable, the reason that it is attractive, the reason it's interesting is because God wanted it to be that way. That's what it is. I mean, you go read the book of Song of Solomon. You know, it's just, God made it that way on purpose. He wasn't like, oh no, what have I done? He did it on purpose. He made it like that on purpose. What we do with everything God gives us is we take what God gives us, and if we do in our humanity, we twist it around into something that he didn't make it for. We try to make it into something it wasn't made to be. And the, and the way that we do that ultimately, what I wrote on your paper is, we make sexuality the hope of our life, the answer for our life. We make it the way that we feel attractive, the way that we feel acceptable, the way that we feel like we belong, the way that we get relief from stress, the way that we fit in, right? We make sexuality a tool. It was a gift from God, but we try to turn it into something bigger than what it is. We talk about, I deserve to be happy. And so much of our concept of happy is tied in with sexuality. And this, this power that it has expresses itself in a lot of ways. One of those ways is this, this idea of same-sex attraction. But that's not the only place where people take sexuality and turn it into the hope for their life. Right? Sex addictions, pornography, uh, there's a lot of adultery, premarital sex. There's lots of sexual sin in our world today. And I believe that there is lots of sexual struggle in our church today because we, we're just confused. We're in that cloud that Dana's talking about. We just can't see clear on it. So I'm hoping that if we dig into the Word of God, God can use this to, to drive us forward. The other thing is this, and I think this is kind of a newer phenomenon, but today, sexuality really is a strong definer of identity, especially in this community of people, same-sex people. Um, and what that, I believe what that arises from is this, and, and I understand it. What became, what used to be shameful, and I felt guilt and I felt fear about anybody finding out this deep, dark secret because keeping it secret is the answer oh, with my sin always, right? It was David's answer, right? When he sinned with Bathsheba, just keep it quiet. Let's just keep it quiet. That's always the answer. If I can just keep it quiet, then it'll be cool. Well, in reaction to that, eventually, what, what became the belief system was validation is the answer. If I, if, if I get people to say this is good, if I can believe in my soul this is a good thing, it will take away my guilt or my shame or the, the wound that's there. Make sense? So it becomes a desperate search. It, and so really it gets intertwined. It gets intertwined with if I criticize the, the behavior, I am criticizing the person because it's an identity entwined thing. Does that make sense to you? 
It's like if somebody says to me, if somebody came up to me after the service and said, you know, all pastors are just da-da-da-da. Now, I'm going to have a hard time not taking that personally. You know what I mean? They may not mean it personally. They may just be talking about the way pastors act or whatever. But because that's what I do, there's some of me that's kind of bound in. It's going to be hard for me to untangle it. So the same way, I think we've been way very flippant in the way that we've talked about issues of same-sex attraction, not understanding that there are deep identity survival issues that go on in there. And so criticizing one is the same as criticizing the other. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like saying, well, it's too bad because it's sinful and we should all know that it's sinful. Well, first of all, I hope that you do know where you get that from. And that's what we want to look at. But secondly, it's kind of like saying, well, I'm going to go, sh- go witness for Christ, but I'm going to speak Chinese. And if they can't understand it, too bad. You know, like, learn the language. Like, we live in this world. If you're trying to communicate in this world, let's actually try to communicate in this world. And not just say, well, if you can't catch up, too bad for you. Because that shows a heart that I don't believe reflects the heart of Christ. You with me? All right. So the question that we're asking is, how can we address this phenomenon in our society today? Um, There are many who believe that what we need to do is create constitutional amendments about what defines a marriage. There are some who believe that we need to stand up and protest and we need to take things to court and we need to have laws enacted and, and all that kind of stuff. I wonder where you stand on all that stuff. I wonder what you think the answer is to this. Like before the Lord, if Jesus were at the back door tonight as you walked out and said, well, what do you think the solution is to this? What would you tell him? What do you believe is God's leading as an answer to this issue in our world today? All right, so let's start by doing this. And my goal is, as we read through this stuff, I want to demystify the word of God to you, okay? I want you to be able to read what it says and say, well, that's pretty plain, because I believe that it is pretty plain. So let's take a look. Leviticus 18 is the Old Testament passage that at length describes sexual sin and prohibits it among the children of Israel, all right? So chapter 18, verse 1, the Lord says to Moses, speak to the Israelites, say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live. You must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. And then this chapter is really about sexual practices, okay? So what do we got? Uh, Verse 6, no one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. Okay, what are we talking about there? Incest, okay? So that, that's the category. And that's the category for a while. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father or your sister or your father's daughter. Or and we're kind of going through incest for a while here, okay? This is too close of a relationship for you to have sex with this person. Now, hard as that is to imagine, this had to be spelled out because this was not normative in the culture of the world at that time. In fact, it was, it was an acceptable alternative to marry someone who was your sister or your half-sister, things like that, because it kept bloodlines pure and you know, kept all the, the inheritance within the family and things like that. It was a human solution, but unfortunately, it had catastrophic results. I mean, if you think about it, Abraham married Sarah, who was his half-sister, right? When he went to look for a wife for Isaac, he went to look for his niece. You know what I mean? Or Laban is um, Sarah's brother, and it was Laban's daughter that... So, you know what I'm saying? Like, when we, when we go through this idea, there was time where that was the norm. God is saying in Leviticus, that's the end of what we would consider today incest. Yucky, right? Okay? Now, the reason I bring this up is because I want you to get the flow here. I'm not just going to try to pick a verse out of the middle of this, okay? If you keep going down, verse 15, don't have sexual relations with your daughter-in-law. Verse 16, don't have sexual relations with your brother's wife. This is all kind of like overlapping, close familial relationships, and it kind of goes on and on and on, okay? Um, You get down a little while, you get to don't have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. And it's about dishonoring covenants and dishonoring one another. But God is saying, this is detestable practice in my sight and you will not do it as my people. I have called you out to be different from them. Yes. 
There was a, there, this is about while your brother's still alive. That is a practice, passing the, the, the widow on to the next brother was a practice that was meant to honor her position in the family by giving her a, children, a child who would be the heir to that brother who passed away. Because when, when your when dad had, had sons, his livelihood or his property, whatever, was divided up amongst his sons. That was their inheritance. If that son dies without a, uh, an heir, then effectively his part of the inheritance is gone, like is no longer theirs. So what they did, there's not really a moral judgment on this in the story, but it's before this. But the idea is what they would do is they would say, well, the, his next brother is going to, to give that uh, woman a child so that that child can stand in his brother's heir position to receive the inheritance so the inheritance is not divided and so that that widow has some way of being provided for. So that's what that is. But that's well before this. Make sense? All right. So as you come down to this chapter, now here's where you get um, verse 21. Do not give any of your children to, this, to be sacrificed to Molech. Hard to imagine taking a baby and putting it in a fire to sacrifice your child to a god. Hard to imagine. This is what we're dealing with. Clearly that had some kind of a sexual element to it because it's in this chapter about sexuality. Okay, so pick up some of that stuff. All right, then verse 22, do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman that is detestable. There it is. All right. And then next chapter, I mean, next verse, do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is perversion. Do not defile yourself in any of these ways because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Okay, so here's what God says in, in the law. As you read that, you can see pretty clearly that God is making a prohibition, at least uh, against male homosexuality. I would, I would argue that there is included the idea of same-sex attraction across the board in that. But since the men were the ones that were being addressed in this chapter. It's don't have sex with this wife or that girl or this girl or whatever. It's the continuation of that idea. But certainly it didn't mean that the women were free from guilt in those scenarios. And so similarly here, just because it addresses the male scenario does not mean that it is excluding the female scenario. Does that make sense to you? I'm not trying to stretch it. I'm just saying as you look at how it's presented, it's about men, your sexuality with women. And so you can extend it to include the idea of it would be defiling all the way across the board. So, yes. Well, I think, in yeah, that's, it is weird. It's at the end of all that stuff, and it's the first time he really addresses a woman. I don't know. But obviously, it's trying to make the point that having sex with animals is absolutely forbidden. So I, that makes it clear. Yeah, we'll get to Romans in a minute. Yep, absolutely. No, no, you're good. I'm glad you know that. That's cool. Very cool. Absolutely. So what I'm trying to do, because if you were around, if you were paying attention when John Amici came out as the first NBA, former NBA player who became, declared himself gay, he made some statements about the Old Testament law and what God said and what God didn't say. So now you've read what God says in the law. Now, if you go over to chapter 20, it is the penalty, the punishment chapter for chapter 18. Okay? And so it, it meets out punishment. Okay? Um, uh, verse 17, if a man marries his sister, the daughter of his father and mother is disgraced. They must be cut off before the eyes of their people. He has dishonored his sister and will be held responsible. What is he saying? Cast out. Okay. Uh, verse 13, if a man lies with a man as, li- as he lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Their blood must be on their own heads. So, anybody have any questions about that? Now, I will say this to you. Do we live in Israel? Are we Israelites? Is God the ruler of our country? You know what I mean? Like, we, we don't have the, this is not the system that we live under in America, okay? I'm not making the point that we should go kill people who struggle with this issue. If I were... I would be saying, verse 12, if a man sleeps with his daughter-in-law, both of them must be put to death. Verse 11, if a man sleeps with his father's wife, he is dishonored his father. Both the man and the woman must be put to death. 
In other words, it's not, we can't single out an issue here and say, okay, well, that's what the Bible teaches. And clearly, that's not what God has called us to in this world, in, in the place in which we live. This was the way God set it up because Israel was a theocracy. God ruled them through the prophets, and God gave them laws, and they were empowered to carry those laws out. If I were to go kill someone, if I were to go execute punishment, I have not been commissioned by God as an ordinary citizen to go do that. We have police, we have courts, we have laws. That's who God has commissioned to do that stuff. Does that make sense? I do not want anybody to misunderstand what the Bible says here and say, oh, well, we need to go start killing people. All right. But you get a sense of the severity of this. So let's talk about the law for a second. I put this on your, on your note sheet. Let's talk about the law for a second here. There's a lot in the, in the Word of God that is the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, but largely Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy are really the books that pack in. These are the commands of God for you to follow. You, I could break those down really into three parts, um, kind of two-ish, but really three. Um, one of them is what we would call the ceremonial law. Okay, ceremonial law was a law about when you, when you worship, you do this. When, 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 you know, when you come in, you wash your hands and you offer this sacrifice. As you begin in the book of Leviticus, there's this offering for this thing and that offering for that thing, and there's a guilt offering, and there's a burnt offering, and there's a wave offering, and there's a grain offering, and all kinds of offerings, all right? Which always cracks me up when, when churches are like, you got to give your 10% because that's the Old Testament pattern. Baloney. That was one of the thousands of patterns of offerings they gave. Every time you sinned, you have to give in the Old Testament. You know what I mean? So actually wound up being more like 30, 35% of your income is what you had to give under the Old Testament law. Not 10, okay? So we're talking about like some serious giving going on here, some serious prescription. It was a ceremonial law. Every year they had the Day of Atonement, they would sacrifice an animal, ceremony. Then there were what I would call, and, and even some of that stuff was like clean, unclean, and it kind of crosses over. It's why ceremonial law kind of includes this other one too. There was what we would call hygiene laws, dietary and hygiene laws, which were about what you were allowed to touch and not touch. If you touched a dead body, you were unclean. You were ceremonially unclean. And you couldn't go worship at the temple for seven days, and you had to go through this ritual, and you had to bring an offering of sacrifice and whatever. And there was unclean and clean things about what animals you could eat or what animals you couldn't eat. Okay? You familiar with that idea, that concept? This was the way that God prescribed for them to live as a community together. If someone were a leper, there was a law that said they have to live outside the camp. They can't come into the camp. That would be a hygiene law. They didn't want the leprosy to spread, right? So God is dictating the way that their culture is going to function and the way that their worship, their interaction with God is going to function in the Old Testament law. Then there's a component that we call the moral law. And these are moral principles that are absolute. They are right and wrong. Give me, a, give me an example of a part of the moral law of the Old Testament. Thou shalt not murder. Ten Commandments, right? Don't kill and steal and covet and commit adultery, right? So th- these are wrong, not because it's a ceremony, because you're ceremonially unclean. These are wrong because they're wrong, right? Now, you can argue that if someone rebelled against God's command in say Leviticus here or whatever, about what offering they gave at what time, that they were morally wrong because they had rebellion against God, and that's true. But specifically, it wasn't a moral function for them about how they washed their hands or whether they ate this thing or that thing. It was a dietary ceremonial law, and it was one of the ways that God set them apart, like circumcision as a a sign of the covenant. It was a way that God set them apart. You're going to live different than everybody else. And you kind of see that as we read, even just the short passage we read in Leviticus. You are not going to do what they did. You're going to be different. Which is why when you get to the New Testament and they say, come out from among them and be separate, in 2 Corinthians 6, right? Touch not the unclean thing. He's referring back to this Old Testament concept that we should live unique as believers. We should live, we're going to look at this on Sunday, we should live free from sin. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Right? That should be the norm of a Christian life. If it is not the norm of your life, there's two possibilities. Either you're not a believer or you are not living a healthy Christian life. You're not living what would be a normal Christian life. You are living diseased and dysfunctional if you are living enslaved to sin as a believer. And so that, that idea, be separate, be, that's what he's doing here. I want you to be different and we're going to put marks on you so that everybody knows that you are my people. Um, 
in the New Testament, we get the concept, and this comes up a lot in, in religious discussions about uh, same-sex attraction. Um, the Old Testament law was done away with, right? When Jesus came, we're no longer under the law, whatever. Okay, there is part of the law that has been done away with for us as believers. Galatians says, we are no longer under the law, we are under grace. That is the ceremonial law, the hygiene law. If you remember the story of Peter on the roof, the food comes down and it's unclean food and God says, eat. And Peter says, no, I will not. Why? Because you told me not to, God. I'm not going to do what you told me not to do. God says, don't call what I've made clean, unclean. Eat. In other words, those dietary restrictions had moved into, they had outgrown their usefulness. We were no longer going to follow them. God had released us from them. Ceremonially, do we need to offer sacrifices for sin and on certain days and that kind of stuff? No, we don't. As a matter of fact, the early church stopped observing the Sabbath as the day of worship and began observing the first day of the week as the day of worship. Why? The resurrection of our Lord was on the first day of the week. And so we, we chose a different day of worship. It's, you know, are we disobeying the law? Well, we're not under that part of the law, the law that prescribed the ceremony, right? Doesn't mean we don't need to worship. Doesn't mean we don't need to stop all of our you know, running around. I think that would be maybe the healthiest thing in the world for us if we as believers got some sanity and stopped running around like crazy seven days a week. That was what God prescribed, by the way, back in Genesis. Seventh day, he rested, and he said, you, you make it a day of rest as well. However, uh, what I'm saying is this. We have the ceremonial law in the New Testament being done away with, but the moral law, right is still right and wrong is still wrong. but to fulfill it. Yeah. In other words, what is Jesus saying there? I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. What's Jesus saying there? Go ahead, Mike. Go ahead. What, what, he, what he did is he said, I didn't come to say, ah, oh, bad, big mistake, throw that away. He came to say, everything that that was about, now I've shown you what it's about. I have fulfilled it. It's not that it's useless, but it no longer applies. All those ceremonial laws no longer apply to us as believers today. Okay? I know there are people who are like, well, I don't eat this and that because the Old Testament says don't eat this and that. Great. Have at it. But let's not make it into a law that we're all obligated to because the New Testament makes it very clear that we're not obligated to it, okay? However, the moral law doesn't change. Now, let me ask you, what do you think that his command about sexuality, those commands in, in Leviticus 18, what do you think those were part of? you think they were part of the ceremonial cleanness law or part of the moral law? There, there is an argument out there that that was just you know, a uniqueness, much like circumcision, that is optional for us today. But I would say to you, that's part of the moral law. That's part of right and wrong. Just like when he said you shouldn't commit adultery, it would be like saying, well, that's done away with now. Now you can just cheat on your spouse all you want. It's no big deal because we're Christians, right? Or you can go have incest all you want. That's totally appropriate for believers. Or you can go practice bestiality all you... Like, that's the flow that it's in. In that passage. So I'm not saying that everybody has to think this way. You, you are called, you're given a choice by God about how you're going to think, and you'll answer to him for how you think. I'm just saying as you look at it, is it clear enough what God says about that issue in the Old Testament? And one of the reasons I wanted to bring that up and get into it that deeply is because um, when John Amici came out, he said, and this has become a very popular saying, well, the Old Testament also prohibits eating shellfish. So if being gay is the same as eating shellfish, I think I'm all right. Because all you, you Christians that are all about the law, you pick and choose. Okay? Now, eating shellfish is in um, Leviticus chapter 11, verse 9, where God's telling them what they're allowed to eat and not allowed to eat. So verse 9, Of all the creatures living in the water, of all the seas and the streams, you may eat any that have fins and scales. But all creatures in the seas or streams that do not have fins and scales, 
whether among all the swarming things or all other living creatures under the water, you are to detest. And since you are to detest them, you must not eat their meat and you must detest their carcasses. Anything living in the water that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. Okay, so prohibits eating lobster or clams or whatever like that. All right, now... Let's see what happens if you mess up. Oh, I accidentally ate some, you know, mussels or whatever. Okay, what what happens? Verse 24, you will make yourselves unclean by these. Whoever touches their carcasses will be unclean till evening. Whoever picks up one of their carcasses must wash his clothes and he will be unclean till evening. So what happens if I eat something unclean? can't worship. I'm unclean and no one can touch me or I pass my uncleanness to them. There is a ceremonial thing, a, a health dietary thing about it, okay? And that's why those laws go in there. The, the, there's a pretty dramatic difference between eating shellfish and being unclean for the day and having to wash yourself or engaging in, in a sexual uh, activity that's prohibited and being put to death for it. Wouldn't you say? So I think it's an argument from ignorance and I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be overmatched when somebody says, well, they just pick and choose whatever laws they want to from the Old Testament. I don't know that I got to dump all this on somebody, but I want you to be sure in your soul about what the Bible says so that when we go forward to face this, if I'm going to wrestle with the Lord about how do I approach this, I don't want to have uncertainty about what's right and what's wrong. Okay? And if that argument would undermine it for you, then, then I want you to have a place to stand there. All right? The moral law? The dietary restrictions? Well, here's the simple answer to that. The best simple answer I can give you is that on the cross, when Jesus was on the cross, what aspect of the ceremonial law was by the hand of God broken? Why was the sacrifice broken? What did he do? What would illustrate that we are no longer to make sacrifices and go through the ceremony? What happened when Jesus was on the cross when he said it is finished? God said, this ceremony's done. Now, what did the Israelites do? They sewed that curtain back up. But the veil was torn in two. And in that, God is saying, and Jesus said, it is finished and the veil was torn. He's saying these ceremonies are no longer necessary because it has been fulfilled. First Peter talks about it's not by the blood of goats and calves, which could never satisfy, but by the blood of Christ. So there is a trump of those Old Testament ceremonies. Proof of it, Okay. I would say for the dietary things, the proof is in the story in Acts 10 with Peter being called to Cornelius. It's very evident there that the dietary restrictions have been gone. Does that make sense? So again, if people have ears to hear, I know some of you kind of in your heads are going, well, if I have to share this, how do I share this? Let me just say this to you. Jesus talked to a lot of people who didn't want to hear and they didn't get it and they didn't respond. And Jesus talked anyway. So don't worry about it. What I'm trying to do is say, let's start from the foundation of, do you know what the Bible says? And, and that's a great question of, how could I know, how could I simply explain how ceremonial law and dietary cleanliness laws have been removed? The veil torn in the temple is a great example of that. Um, and even some of the discussion in the New Testament, how Jesus is our sacrifice once for all, Hebrews, once for all, right? Uh, Hebrews 10, 14, for one offering is perfected forever forever, those who be made holy. So that idea is, is a powerful concept. Well, let's just say this. Laws, he's saying, how can we tell, the, the argument is that Old Testament law against homosexuality is about hygiene, right? If that's the case, first of all, that person has to accept that all of those sexual sins in that chapter are about hygiene, which is, I don't know that people would necessarily always accept that. I think that the idea of incest and bestiality certainly is offensive to most people. However, if, let's say, theoretically, for the sake of argument, I do accept that, then I would say the penalty that is prescribed for these sexual sins is in a whole different category than the penalty prescribed for the cleanliness things. The cleanliness stuff is washing, taking offering and sacrifice, whatever, but sexual sins are, put them to death. So that's a big deal. Yeah, well, but see, I think this, I think sometimes we make too much of the male-female, like normal sexuality is male-female, because what that tends to do, and I'm just going to say this, not because you're saying this or any of you are saying this, but I'm saying be aware of this, because this, it feels like a double standard. Because someone could come to church, who a couple's living together, and everybody's like, oh, that's not really cool, but okay, I get it. 
And then somebody comes to church who's, who's actively living in a style of homosexuality and you're like, oh, what's wrong with you? You know what I mean? And, and there, there is a big difference in the, at least the perception of what a Christian response would be. I will tell you right now, I have had multiple emails from people interested in coming to our church who have yet to come to our church. And their issue is, I consider myself gay. I'm, I'm a gay person. I'm also a Christian. I don't know if I would be welcome in your church. And they've never, man, I've never spoken to these people. I've never had a conversation with them. It's not like they know a lot about us, but they're looking for a place where their sin is not the giant trump card that says you're a reject before you ever show up. So, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that. Thank you for sharing that, Dan. That's powerful stuff and a long journey. And I will say this, I, I believe sometimes we, and we're going to look at Romans 1 in a second, we take on ourselves a responsibility that God hasn't given us to convince, to convict, right? Who is the one to convince and convict? God does it to us, the Spirit. Right. And that is, honestly, that is the biggest question that I get from people who are struggling with same-sex attraction. Does this mean I'm going to hell? Now think about that. We've been loud and clear enough that this is a sin. So much so, and to the exclusion of the other message, which is much more important in my opinion, that people are convinced that if this is my struggle and if I give in to it, that it means I am doomed to eternal punishment and judgment. Let me just ask you, people of God, is that the ultimate sin, the uber sin, that the first question God asks you when you get to heaven, are you gay? What, What is the difference between heaven and hell as an eternal destination? Whether or not I'm born again, right? Whether or not I'm saved. Now, you can argue when you get saved, it should change that. I'm, I'm not going to argue with you that, about that, but I also will say, I'm not God. God knows how to work on that because he is the one who convinces, convicts the world of righteousness and of judgment, right? Isn't that what the Bible says? So God can do that, and I've seen God do that, and we have a testimony even right tonight from Dana. I think a very courageous testimony, but I've seen it in action many times and many ways. What concerns me deeply is... Are we as passionate about getting the, the, the clarity about what makes a person heaven-bound versus hell-bound as we are about making sure somebody knows what's right and wrong? I think that you can say, if somebody's living that lifestyle that they aren't saved, I, I don't know that I want to make that judgment. I think someone can live that lifestyle and still be saved, miserably saved, but saved. Uh, or I think it could very well be an indication that they're not saved. I'm not the judge of that. But we'll look at what, what it's saying in 1 Corinthians 6 because I think that's a big thing that gets confused. Go with me to Romans 1 because now I want to show you this. Um, and if you've never read this before, you know, the argument that this is an Old Testament, like, like Matt said, an Old Testament hygiene requirement, let's look at what it says in Romans 1 and what it doesn't say in Romans 1, Okay. All right, and this is how it gets kind of amped up. So you start at verse 18. It gets kind of like this, this charge to it. It says, the wrath of God is being revealed. The wrath of God is being revealed. And that, oh, okay, I got you. God is mad, you see? And that's not really what that's talking about in that way. He's talking about judgment. And, and God is going to make some judgments in this chapter. But it's kind of like this, this trump card. Revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Would you say that that is a, a choice to suppress the truth by wickedness? Okay. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, for God has made it plain to them. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Basically, everybody in this whole world has enough information to know that there's a God. That's what Paul says here. Everyone has enough information to know there's a God. There's what we call general revelation. You look up at the sky, you look at the stars, you look at the tree, you look at the design of your body. There's enough information to know that there is a designer and a creator. All right, keep going. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him or gave thanks to him. 
But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Sounds a lot like a description of the United States of America in 2014. They're professing themselves to be wise. They become fools. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. That word is lust. Sinful desires. That word is lust. What they want. To sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Okay, so God said, when they've rejected God, they've seen the truth, they've, 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 they've recognized that there is a creator, but they don't want that. Why won't they want that? Because it would mean giving up control of my life. If there's a God that I will answer to, I don't want that. And so I play this game in my head that says, if, there, if I don't believe in a God or don't accept him, then I can do what I want. Then I can go be happy. Then I can indulge in my sinful lusts. Then I can go live how I want if there's no God to answer to. That's the picture that Paul's painting here. Okay? And so he says that what they do is they give their hearts to sexual impurity. That word is not homosexuality. That word is sexual impurity. I would suggest to you that all of the firestorm and focus on same-sex attraction is masking a bigger issue. That we as a culture and as a society have embraced sexual impurity as an answer for life. And it's not. It is a deception from the heart of the evil one to all of us. And same-sex attraction is one issue of that. Now, let me say this. We talk about, we're going to talk about some of the questions that come out of this. I'm just trying to give you the Bible. But there is a question out there about why would God make me gay? Why would God give me those attractions? And what I generally try to emphasize, and I'd like to, to dive into this next week, is God gave all of us sexual desires that we are called to not act on. All of us. You with me? Before I am married, how many of my sexual desires am I supposed to act on? Do, I, do they just magically turn on when I walk down an aisle, or are they there before then? Right? God gave all of us sexual desires and said, live holy. Own your body, 1 Thessalonians 4. Don't live by your lust. You're not an animal. Live holy. All of us, sexual desires that we are called to not fulfill. After I get married, oh, that's the end. Now I don't have any unfulfilled sexual desires, right? Or I think Jesus talked about like looking on a woman to lust after her, didn't he? You know, I think that there is plenty of evidence out there about people who are indulging in sexuality outside of marriage. Pornography is epidemic in our world. It is the great secret sin of our church. You know, that people can do it in silence, in quietness, and nobody will know. But we're ready to point our finger at those people who, you know, same-sex attraction, you guys are going to hell. He includes all of it as a result of rejecting God. As a result, and I'm not saying rejecting God as in you're not saved. I'm saying rejecting God as in you're not in charge of me. Yeah. And we turn instead to wickedness and, and hopeless pursuit of what we believe can make our life livable, maybe possibly make us happy. It's why God says, before you're married, there is to be no sexuality, right? So if you're living together, the call of God on you is to be pure. And I would be, to be honest with you, the call of God is for you not to live together. Now, some people can't do anything differently. So then, you know, if you Put it in the Lord's hands. I would encourage you to accept the truth that that's not the situation for you and then put that in God's hands. God, we can't afford to move apart, but you, we know you're not, we're not called to live like this, so lead us and watch God lead, right? You don't have to decide if you can figure it all out before you decide to follow God. Follow God first. But the call from God is just as much about that as it is about dealing with the, the same-sex attraction thing that God has called you to not act upon. So I would say to you this, the norm of a believer's life, the norm of anyone who follows the word of God is to be in control of your lust and not to let your lust control you. That should be the norm. There is only one legitimate outlet for that sexual expression, a wonderful gift from God, not the hope of your life, 
but a wonderful gift from God meant to be enjoyed. And that gift is to be expressed in the continuity of a marriage relationship between a husband and wife till death do us part. That's the way God created it. That's the way God designed it. That's the way God meant for it to be. And none of us have mastered this issue in our lives. Okay? We, we, I think our culture desensitizes us to it anyway. Right? We were in New York the other day. There was a lady walking around in just her underwear in Times Square. Like, what in the world are you doing? You know? It's crazy. We kind of like, we kind of like make a beeline over this way. I was like, boys, come with me. We're going over here. <laughs> Nothing going on over there. Don't worry about that stuff. You know what I mean? Like, that's what, that's the world we live in. So I would say some of us would feel safer if we could make everything illegal and put a big label on it that's sin. But what we don't do is we don't engage the challenge in our lives to raise our children to know how to deal with that world. We would rather change the world when God calls us to train them. So let's embrace that. And as a church, we're called to train them, right? Well, I don't have kids at home anymore. Well, yeah, but we have kids as a church, don't we? Don't we have great kids? Aren't we blessed with the kids we have? So let's train them how to deal with this world because we're not going to change the world because they rejected God. You know what I mean? Now, there are a lot of people out there who know they're lost, but the, Satan would love to use the excuse of, well, those people are just going to reject you when you walk in the door, right? So we need to do everything we can to remove that obstacle so that they can come and find the real hope that there is, right? That's why Paul says, I become all things to all men. I am desperate for them to hear the good news. Yeah, and we're going to talk, Lord willing, next week, we're going to talk about our response. So I'm not, I'm not trying to get down that deep. If I, if I can just get this information like, about the Bible thing. No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we, that's a big discussion about what are we sharing with the world, right? What do, what do we really think is the hope for them? Because I think the impression we give with what we focus on is that the, the salvation for them is to get straight, to be straight. That, then you'll be fine. I would hate for someone to say, I'm going to leave my life of same-sex activity and get straight, become straight, and then I'm good you're more lost than ever, right? And by the way, you don't really have the power in your life to make any significant change anyway because the only power there is for you to be alive is when Jesus comes in. I want people to know Jesus, right? And, and as you watch him walk around in the New Testament, it didn't seem like he made them clean up before they got to know him, did it? It seemed like getting to know him got them cleaned up, right? Right? And the ones who got to know him and didn't get cleaned up were the ones who rejected him. The whited sepulchers. All right, so Romans 1, we're still going here. So for the degrading of their bodies with one another, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Now, verse 26, because of this, just take an honest look at this and tell me what you think this is talking about. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with, one, with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. All right, so give me an impression. What's he talking about? What? Sin. He is giving multiple examples, right? Steve. The fruit that comes out of that is... All kinds of different stuff, right? It is interesting because Romans 1, I believe, 
it has been has been edited and chopped and spliced to say, well, that's not really saying that uh, loving, committed, long-term relationships are you know, condemned. It's talking about casual sex. It's talking about uh, male prostitution. It's talking about... What did you just read? Is that what it looks like to you? It's not. The simple truth is it's not. I, if, if I have an agenda and I come to it and I try to twist it into something else, I can do that. But if I'm going to say that the Bible's the authority and I'm the student, then as I look at that and read that, it's very clear this is not of God. God did not ask us or allow us or give license to us to practice this kind of behavior. And by the way, it's a whole lot more than homosexuality, isn't it? Uh, A whole lot more. Greed and depravity. Oh, yeah, we never face that, right? Evil, envy, gossip, disobedient to parents. Like, what? Malice, wishing someone evil. Oh, those are fine. We could do those in church. Those don't represent any problem, do they? But... Heaven forbid that somebody come who has this struggle. Now, I'm not stamping approval on any of it. God says all of it is a fruit of rejecting God, all of it. But what I am saying is we need to be very sure that we are biblical in how we talk and not just political on a particular cause and not just, you know, playing to the crowd for the, you know, the big, the big cheers and the big, yeah, yeah, not a boy, I go get them, you're strong. Because I think if we have a passion to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ, we also have to have a passion to know what God's Word says and a courage that will say, I will do that. I will think that way. I will speak that way. Even if it means that I step out in uncertainty of I don't know how to speak because I'm still confused about what the response should be. We can work that out. Tonight, I wanted you to have the concept of knowing what the truth was. So we've looked at Leviticus and we've looked at Romans 1. I think, hopefully, it is very clear to you what those passages teach about whether or not uh, same-sex attraction is something that God permits, encourages, puts His blessing on or whatever. I think it's very clear from the Word of God in those two passages that it is not an Old Testament passage and a New Testament passage. Next time, because we've run out of time, and like I said, I I think it might have been crazy to try to think I was going to do this in two weeks, but... Next time, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 6 because I really believe a lot of disservice has been done by looking at 1 Corinthians 6 in a a limited scope and not seeing what Paul is saying in that passage. I don't think it's going to make uh, same-sex activity okay. You know, God's Word doesn't disagree with itself. But at the same time, I don't think it says what a lot of people would, would take it as from a simplistic reading of it. So we'll take a look at that next time.